0: I would encourage you, if you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. It is the 7th, 7th, 8th, 7th, 8th by book of the Bible. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. That would be 8. There we go. I can count my fingers. So uh, the 8th book of the Bible, I'd give you the page number, but mine's probably different from yours. So, the book of Ruth, it's an exciting little book of the Bible, just four chapters. You could probably read it in about 10 to 15 minutes, depending upon your reading speed. And there is lots of good stuff in the book of Ruth. It should also be available on the Bible app on today's event, all of the scriptures that we'll be looking at. So, as we get started, just a quick reminder from the book of Judges, the end of the book of Judges tells us this. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Now if you remember last week, or you watched the video from last week, you, we went through the whole book of Judges and looked at this long list of, of men and women who were prominent leaders amongst Israel. They did amazing things. We, we see miracles happen. We see uh, people saved and rescued. We see temples to pagan gods that are wrecked. But what's interesting about all of the judges is that none of them really had a a long-lasting influence. Some of them, while they were alive, there was 40 to 80 years of peace. But as soon as they passed away, the land went back into rebellion, back into living their own way and doing their own thing. All of Israel cycled back down into the sin cycle. But uh, what we find in the book of Ruth, which... Uh, scripture tells us happened during the time of the judges, is a much different expression. So here in the book of Ruth, as we read through it, we'll we'll see some things that are true. Number one, God himself never speaks. We don't see God giving a pronouncement. We don't see God giving a word of encouragement or calling out to someone. Uh, Throughout the book of Judges, in which Ruth takes place in that time frame, we, we see God over and over again going to these mighty men and women and saying, I want you to do this, and here's how you need to do it. And as we read Scripture, sometimes we can get the mindset that God only works in big ways. And so here in the book of Ruth, it's important to note that God never speaks. There, there is no prophecy in the book of Ruth. In other words, nowhere do we have someone walking into the room and say, God just told me to tell you so and so. And so no prophecy. And then other than the everyday miracles of things like sunrise and sunset and breathing in and out and your heart beating, there are no miracles recorded here in the book of Ruth. So nothing where we would look at it and go, oh my goodness, look at this big, amazing, only God could do it kind of thing. That happened here. Things like, you know, parting of Red Seas and, and uh, killing 300 people with, with jawbones and, and uh, taking over thousands of, of uh, Midianites with just 300 men with jars and trumpets and, and uh, torches. Instead, what we see in Ruth is just the normal, everyday miracles of life sunrise, sunset, getting up, going out, heart beating, breath in and out kind of stuff. Uh, one commentator, Leon Morris, from the, old, uh, the Tyndale Old Testament Commentary, he says this about Ruth. He says, it's just ordinary people going about their quiet lives. Unimportant people and unimportant matters. So as we read the book of Ruth, while all of this is recorded, there is nothing special about any of these characters as we get started. There's no one that we can look at it and go, God called them out. There's no one we look at it and go, this is a prophet, this is a priest, this is a strong leader. Instead, these are just unimportant people going about and living out their life in seemingly unimportant matters. Now, of course, matters that were important to them, but not seemingly to the big picture of things. But this book, even though God is not active in a sense of speaking or doing miracles, this book is all about him. What we're going to see from the very beginning to the very end is God's glory and his plan of providence, how he quietly and and just meticulously has laid out his plan of redemption for mankind and what it's going to entail and what it's going to take. And so the book of Ruth is this really quiet, unassuming book about everyday life that in the end has huge implications for your redemption and mine. So if you will, open up that book of Ruth and let's read chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. So Ruth says this, During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab. So we've got... Some folks who were from Bethlehem, they leave Bethlehem and they go to Moab. The man's name was Elimelech and his wife's name was Naomi. The name of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband Elimelech died and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah and the second was named Ruth. After they lived about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and the the woman was left uh, without her two children and without her husband. So we see this unfold as as the introduction that they were living in, in Bethlehem in the time of the judges, that there was a famine in the land. They leave, go to Moab over here down to the south and the east of Israel, a, a foreign nation, a nation still ruled by an unfriendly king. And Elimelech dies, uh, Naomi is left, and then she gets her sons married off to Ruth and Orpah, but both of the sons die. And so we're, this is where we're left. A family that, that left Israel, went to a foreign land, dad dies, both of the sons marry foreign women, both of the sons die, So now we're left with a mother-in-law and two daughters-in-law living in Moab. So chapter 6 tells us what happens next. So, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 6 through 22 tells us what happens next. So it tells us this in verse 6. She, Naomi, and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need By providing them with food. So we see, while we don't find God giving prophecy, or we don't see Him speaking to anyone, we see that He Himself is intimately involved in what's going on here. That first there was a famine that drove them out of Bethlehem in Israel, and now the famine is over and God has provided food for His people once again. And so it's time for Naomi to return to her hometown and her daughters-in-law are going with her. So they they leave, they're traveling together back to the land of Judah and Naomi in verse 8 says this to them, Each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. Naomi goes on to say, you know, I'm too old. Uh, I don't have anybody to get you married to when we get back to my place. And not only that, even if I were to get married and have another child, you don't want to wait for that child to get to be old enough to marry them. Now, we might all go, wait a minute, why would that even be a consideration, right? Well, because it was very important in this day and age to try and preserve family lines, to tr- to try and preserve Uh, the the name and the inheritance that would be due to the family. And so it was not uncommon, if you remember back to the time of Judah, all the way back before the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, that uh, Judah's oldest son had a wife. He died. The next son down is supposed to fulfill the duty of giving that wife a child. He dies. And then the third child comes along. They don't let him fulfill the duty the woman eventually tricks her father-in-law, Judah, into fulfilling the duty of giving him, her, an heir. And uh, so it was really important in this day and age to preserve the family line. And so the responsibility of providing an heir passed down. And, and uh, had Naomi had another child, and he had ended up old enough in time, then he would have married one of these two daughters-in-law in order to preserve the family line. But they realized this isn't possible. Now, uh, it's it's interesting to think about how old Ruth and her sister-in-law Orpah might have been. We can imagine they could have been as, as married as early as their early teens, and it's been ten years that they've been married. So there's good reason to believe they're only in their early twenties. So they're not old women. Uh, the two younger women, but Naomi's probably in her forties. Which you know, all of us who have entered the forties, we know that's old and near death, and we might as well just, you know, give up. It's all downhill from here, right? No. But in that day and age, it very much would have been the case. So Ruth seeks to send both of the daughter-in-laws back to their own homes that they might start fresh in their own family homes with their own parents and begin life again. They're still young enough that that's possible. Orpah goes on and, and does that. She returns. She's happy to go back to her family. Uh, Ruth clings to Naomi, verse 14 tells us. And and Naomi is encouraging her, listen, Ruth, you need to go back to your family. And here's what Ruth says in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Ruth replied, Don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die... I will die, and there I will be buried. So Ruth essentially says to Naomi Listen, this is a done deal. I'm by your side until the day I die. And I am abandoning and renouncing everything about me that used to be true. And I am adopting from my own identity and my own self. I'm your daughter. I'm yours. I belong to you. I belong to your family. I belong to your people. I belong to your God. And then she says this at the end, May the Lord, she uses the personal name for the one true God, may He punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. So we see in Ruth this move from from being a foreigner who would worship pagan gods to someone who renounces that lifestyle of paganism And submits herself to both living as an Israelite and worshiping the one true God. And so she makes this this conversion of faith, if you will. Trusting in the one true God to take care of her, to provide for her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And so they end up back in Bethlehem, back in the, the area of Judah. And Naomi is starting to see her old friends again. Hey, ladies, I'm back. Except she's not encouraged. She's not cheerful. Verses 20 and 21 tells us that she says this. Don't call me Naomi, her name which meant pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, she answered. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me. And so we see Naomi, who wants to be called Mara, we see here that she is making a public profession from her perspective that God had been unfaithful and abandoned her. And so she was bitter toward God and toward everything He had to offer. Anybody ever had a day like that? (laughs) A week, a month, a year, a season of life? Where it seems like everything that you thought God had promised you has gone wrong. And instead of being in a place where you are pleasant with him, he has brought you to a place where you are bitter and feel like he has been completely unfaithful to you. It's important for you to understand you're not alone. Naomi Mara, she is here and she's saying, Listen, I don't even want you to call me by my old name because it reminds me of the person who used to be happy with God. Instead, I want you to call me bitter because that's what I am. And it's God who made me this way. So the end of the chapter, chapter 1, tells us this. Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And so we see Naomi and Ruth back in Bethlehem. But what's interesting is these two women alone, with no man in their life, have very little opportunity. In fact, it's it's possible uh, if if things had not gone well, that they would have simply starved to death with no one to care for them, with no one to provide for them. And so they they immediately have to begin, now it's the time of the barley harvest, they immediately have to begin to figure out what are they going to do to survive? How are they going to live? Now, they have the rights to some land, but it's been unfarmed for a number of years, uncared for. They, they likely have a small place to reside. But otherwise, they are completely unprovided for. And that brings us to chapter 2. And chapter 2, after chapter 1 tells us that um, the barley harvest was ongoing, it, it begins to set the stage for what's going to happen next. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character from a Limelech's family. His name was Boaz. And so chapter 2 begins to introduce us to another character in the story. We we already know Ruth and Naomi. We're, we're intimately involved with their losses. And we see that they've, they've suffered and everyday life has beat them down. And now we've got kind of hanging out on the outside a new character, a new person, Boaz. And so what happens is Ruth has to go out and begin to glean in the fields in order to gather enough food to keep her and Naomi alive. Now, in in the Levitical law and in the Deuteronomical law, what we see is God had made provision for people, the poor and the indigent, to be cared for in the kingdom of Israel and amongst his people. And a rule that God had established is this. Uh, When it was time for harvest, harvesters could, first of all, only go through the field one time. In other words, that as they're cutting down the grains and gathering the sheaves together, they could only go through once. And they weren't supposed to harvest the corners of their fields either. They were supposed to leave some of of the, the produce and the crop on the boundaries of the field. So they could only go through once to gather the the harvest, and they were supposed to leave a little bit behind on the edges. And what this was meant to accomplish was that the poor and the indigent, those who did not have land of their own or those who were struggling in life and maybe had a bad harvest on their own land, what they could do then is they could come behind the paid harvesters and they could gather what was left behind on the ground. They could gather up the grains that had been dropped. They could go to the corners of the field and harvest what was extra or left by the initial paid field hands. And so God had made it possible for both the landowner to get what he required out of the land to pay his, his servants who were helping harvest, to, to support his own lifestyle, to prepare for the crops next year, to tithe faithfully to, to, the, to God. But, but he also, in his plans and the way he established things, made it possible for those who could not do otherwise to have provision. But guess what they had to do to get it? A little bit of work. It wasn't just sit and somebody will give you welfare. It was instead... Things will be left for you, but you'll need to gather them. And so that's what Ruth takes advantage of. And she and Naomi, uh, well, Naomi stays behind. Ruth goes out and begins to glean in a field. Uh, Verse 3, so Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. So now we see why Boaz is important. That providentially, and the word providence is what we use to explain God had a plan but nobody knew about it. Providentially God had set the stage for Ruth to be in the field of Boaz. There's no prophecy, there's no word from the heavens where God says, Ruth, go to the fields of Boaz and I'll make everything better. Nothing like that. Instead, what we get is It just so happens that Ruth ends up in the field of Boaz. Now, what kind of man is Boaz? Verse 4 of chapter 2 tells us this. Later, when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to the harvesters, The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you they replied. See, we, we, we see God's presence, even just on the outskirts, that these are people who they are working daily and they are, they are striving to be faithful. Now, remember, this is taking place in the time of the judges, where as a nation, Israel is just a mess. But in the midst of the mess, there are faithful individuals who seek to honor God, who seek to be faithful to what he's commanded them and to, to care for and bless one another in his name. And so, uh, Ruth and Boaz meet, and, and Ruth lets, or Boaz lets Ruth know that, that he knows who she is, that, that he understands her story, and he is so pleased with what she has done for her mother-in-law. Verse 12 then says, we, we see this, Boaz essentially pl- praying a blessing over Ruth and saying this, "'May the Lord reward you for what you have done, and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel.'" under whose wings you have come for refuge. Here's Ruth just working to try and make provision for she and her mother-in-law. And Boaz sees her faithfulness. He sees what she's abandoned, what she's given up. And her story of coming from Moab with her mother-in-law has already begun to percolate throughout the town of Bethlehem. And Boaz says, I see what you've done. I know what's going on. May God bless you for seeking refuge in him. And you know that, that Boaz is just confident that the one true God, the God of Israel, he's worth seeking refuge in. So Boaz lets Naomi know that it, it's important for her to share a meal with his harvesters when it's time for food. And, and he, he wants Ruth to go ahead and just walk with His harvesters to make sure that she's cared for, that nothing happens to her. And so from a distance, Boaz begins to take care of her. And then the day ends and Ruth goes back to Naomi. Verse 19 tells us this, Her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you gather barley today and where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. In other words, Naomi still doesn't know what God has done he doesn't under, she doesn't see that, that God's hand has been working, but she knows, hey, there's a bit of food here. In fact, quite a bit of food. 26 quarts of barley she was able to glean. Uh, that's, that's a lot of food. Shelley and I have been doing tomatoes and other things. A quart's a lot. Uh, we walk in with like five-gallon buckets of tomatoes and end up with like two quarts of you know, canned tomatoes. So uh, a, a can of a quarts, a lot of, a lot of food. So anyway, all that to say, Naomi asks Ruth, how was your day? May God bless the man whose fields you were working in. Ruth told her mother-in-law whom she had worked with and said, the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued, the man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. So remember, there is a practice that a family is supposed to be continued by a, a, a man marrying or taking under his wing the, the widow of a close relative in order to preserve that family line. And Naomi says to Ruth, ooh, this guy could do that for us. I mean, you could just see that she's, well, while it, it reads kind of reserved. You know, we can imagine just how excited she probably is. She sees that God the one that she was bitter toward and thought he had abandoned her, all of a sudden she can see that God's hand is in this, that God has been arranging this. Just in the everyday, normal circumstances of life, God has set the stage for something amazing to be possible. And so Naomi is excited. She she wants God to bless Boaz. She blesses God for his faithfulness and his kindness. And then the the end of chapter 2 tells us that Ruth stayed close to Boaz's female servants and gathered grain until the barley harvest and the wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother in law. And so, oh, this is not just a couple of days, but this is a matter of weeks likely that from a distance, Boaz is caring for Ruth and Naomi, and it's all because God had by his plan and by his providence, his secret plan that nobody knew but he did, he's worked out for Ruth and Naomi to be provided for by their kinsman, redeemer, Boaz. And so a number of weeks passed and and things are going well. Ruth and Naomi are, are cared for and well fed. But now that the harvests are over, there will be no more grain to glean. And so it becomes... Readily apparent to Naomi that something needs to happen. Something more needs to go down. So chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, the whole chapter here. Ruth and Naomi begin to to follow a plan that Naomi believes to be of her own design. Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Now, isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfumed oil, and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. And so Naomi begins to give Ruth a plan. Listen, everything's gone really well so far, but I need you to get taken care of for the rest of your life. And I don't want you out gleaning fields. So here's the deal. I want you to go to Boaz. And I want you to get cleaned up. And I want you to put on something nice. And I want you to go talk to him. Because it's his role, potentially, to redeem us. It's his role, possibly, to marry you and to make our family something special again in this area. And so Ruth follows her mother-in-law's plan. And starting in verse 7, it tells us that after Boaz ate, drank, and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley. And she came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. So he asked, who are you? Now, they've interacted before, right? But it's been weeks, and it's dark. And she says... Ruth, your servant, she replied, take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. She says, I, 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 even I as I have submitted to, to God Almighty under the leadership of my mother-in-law, now I need someone to protect me. I need someone under whose wing I can rest, and you are that one, if you will. Will you protect me and be my family redeemer? It goes on to say that they discuss it. He, he is very wheeling, willing, in fact, uh, says to her in verse 10, May the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger, hotter men, whether rich or poor. It doesn't say it hotter, but it, by implication, right? Ruth, this is kind of saying, essentially, Boaz looks at Ruth and goes, You could have had anybody, but you chose me. And it's because God had chosen Boaz for Ruth. God had set the stage. God had providentially made this happen. As Boaz and Ruth and Naomi lived quiet and faithful, ordinary lives, God was always in control. So Boaz agrees to redeem her if that is her will. But there's one little hiccup. There's one family member who's a closer relation than Boaz. And so Boaz cannot just marry Ruth and take over for her husband and her father-in-law and claim their inheritance. Instead, he must go through this other closer family member in order to make sure he doesn't want to do it. So, Boaz says this, stay here tonight and in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. So, it, it continues, uh, Ruth stays with him for at uh, his feet there on the threshing floor for just a little while. Some, some more liberal commentators and thinkers like to go, I wonder what happened. <laughs> Nothing. That's what scripture tells us. Nothing happens. He doesn't know she's there to start. And then when she is there, he keeps distance and wants to make sure that he protects her good name in case things don't work out the way he's anticipating. Verse 18 of chapter 3. Naomi and Ruth are back together again. Ruth has told her what's going to happen. And Naomi says to her, My daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest unless he resolves this today. Now it's interesting, this is this last verse of chapter 3. We know that Naomi is speaking specifically about Boaz, that Boaz will resolve this today. He is going to go to the gates of the city where all of the business takes place between the men of the city, and he is going to work this issue out so that by the end of today we're going to know what's going to happen between you and Boaz. But also this is just a beautiful double statement of the one who actually has the plan, the one who is working things out, will not rest until this is resolved. God himself has already seen the end of this. He already knows what is to pass. And Ruth and Naomi are going to be pleasantly surprised when it all finalizes. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 17 is the conclusion of the story. Boaz goes to the, the, the gate of the town. He sits down. He finds the other guy who is the other closer Family member calls him over. Calls over some witnesses. He ends up um, asking the guy if he wants to redeem first the fam or the uh, the uh, sorry the land of Elimelech. And the guy's like, Oh yeah, I'll take his land. That'll be great. I'll buy it. We'll keep it in the family. And then Boaz goes, If you do that, you also have to marry his daughter-in-law Ruth, the Moabite. And the guy's like, Oh yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> no, nope. I'm out. And Boaz is like, cool, then can I do it? The other kinsman, Redeemer, the one who is closer, says, absolutely you can. What do they do? They trade sandals as a sign of their contract. Aren't you glad we don't do that anymore? I mean, buying a house is terrible. Your hand hurts so bad, but at least you don't have somebody else's stinky shoe, right? Right? Can you imagine if that was like custom? You had to leave somebody else's stinky shoe on your mantle to prove that you bought the house? Ah, it'd be weird. Your new car, somebody's flip-flop hanging from the mirror. That's how you knew you'd bought it. Weird. But this is what they did in that day and age. And everyone is excited by verse 11 that, that, that we see that Boaz has all of these witnesses. They are affirming that this transaction has taken place. And all the people who were at the city gate, including the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who's, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephratah, and your name be well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son, of Ta- the son Tamar, bore to Judah because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. You see that, that everyone is excited and they're seeing this is a similar circumstances that's what's happened in their own familial past. Remember the story I mentioned earlier and we actually spent a week on where Tamar went to her father-in-law Judah and tricked him into giving her an heir that was rightfully hers. And these people here in the town of Bethlehem from Judah, they are actually descendants of that. And they're saying, may it happen to you just like it happened to our ancestors that you're blessed by your status as a kinsman redeemer. May your children be blessed. May may great things come from this union as you redeem this family. Scripture tells us this. It says, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. You know, from from the very beginning, we know that God's hand has been in this. Ruth was married for 10 years to her first husband and never had a child. Had she had a child, especially a son, she would have been ineligible to be redeemed by Boaz. Boaz. And yet God in His providence never gave her conception with her first husband. But now, in this moment, by His perfect plan, as she and Boaz have lived faithful everyday lives, God grants them conception. She gives them a son. And then, not only are they blessed with a son, but verse 14 tells us this, "'The women said to Naomi, "'Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today.'" May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. These ladies are so excited for Naomi. Naomi, whose name means pleasant, who actually wanted all of her friends to call her what? Bitter. Mara. Call me bitter. And here we are just a few weeks later and shes they're all just... Giddy together. Well, that's a few months. Actually, it takes nine to do that, doesn't it? <laughs> Sometimes I get a little caught up and and get excited preaching, right? But so a few months later, all of a sudden, here's this child, and Naomi's excited, and everybody's excited for her. She's turned the page. She's no longer bitter, but she is once again pleasant and rejoicing because of what God has done in her life. And it goes on to say this: that Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became a mother to him. The neighbor women women said, a son has been born to Naomi. This is how the the law of the kinsman redeemer, this is how the the tradition worked, is that the the widow became the mother of of this this new child. And and yet, he's still Ruth's baby as well. And so they share him, raising him up. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, some of us, because we haven't made it this far yet, we might wonder, so these are great names. Who are these people? I don't care who Jesse or David are. You will. As this continues to unfold, as we begin continue to see God's plans of, of, of our redemption and the providence, how He's working behind the scenes, not always in big, flashy ways, but sometimes in just quiet, subtle, everyday life kind of ways, we see that this baby, Obed, the son of Ruth, And Boaz. He becomes the father of Jesse, who becomes the father of David, who is the second king of Israel, who is lifted up as an example of a godly leader and and is a type or a picture of Jesus to come, and is himself a, a, a forebear to Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So we see uh, they go back through the lineage again. Now, these are the family records of Perez, the one who had been born to Judah through Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. All these lives knit together through just everyday faithfulness. And what's even more exciting is we go over to the Gospel of Matthew. And it says this in Matthew chapter 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Solomon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Remember Rahab? The foreign prostitute in Jericho? She's the mother of Boaz the man here in this story. God is is using and planning and using everyday normal pagan people and bringing them into His family and redeeming them and putting them in the very lineage of our Savior. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, the pagan Moabitess, who gave up her way of life and gave up everything that used to define her and was redeemed and became a follower of the one true God and gave birth to... To Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David, who is in the lineage of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so in this book of Ruth, a book where God never speaks, there's no prophecy, and there's no miracles, what do we gather from this? First of all, it is that God is glorious. And even in the quiet things, He is at work. And His plan for redemption was always sure through the Old Testament. Do you think it's just a coincidence or an accident that Ruth ends up in the field of Boaz? No, it's the hand of God. But it's the quiet, subtle, everyday, faithful life hand of God. Not the big, noisy armies and trumpets and prophets hand of God. There's no fire from heaven. There's no thou shalt or shall not's. Instead, it's just people faithfully living out their lives and God ordaining what is to come so here in Ruth God never speaks there's no prophecy and no miracles but what is of note is that Ruth and Boaz and Naomi even in their bitterness and their struggles they remain faithful to the God who always remains faithful to them there's a word that we 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 see in Hebrew it's has said it's it's the loving kindness of God It is the fact that He cares for and shows gentle nurturing to His people. We see it all throughout the Old Testament and we see the same kinds of concepts in the New as God loves His people in Christ Jesus. And so... If we do anything as we look at this story, we see the glory of God, we see his plan for redemption, and then we bring it home to what does this mean for us? How can we take what we see in Ruth and not just say hallelujah for what God did, but we rejoice in what God is doing today? Here is today's lesson for us that everyday lives of faith can result in blessing and provision and God's glory. Brothers and sisters, I know it is so hard sometimes to just think that we matter. And, and you know, to be blunt, right? Because that's what we need sometimes. Is, is, have you ever had a day where you just wonder if you have any impact on this world whatsoever? Have you ever been in a place, and, and this happened to me just this week, where I'm sitting and I'm looking at other people. It was at Popeye's. Just so, yeah, we went to Popeye's. The one in Washington, it's questionable, but it's the only place you can get the spicy chicken. And so you just got to go. We're at Popeye's and I'm looking at other people and this is not judging, but to say, who are they? What is their life amounting to? And this is, this is an, a, you know, my own personal existential struggle, right? Who am I and what's my life amounting to? Here I am on a Friday eating spicy chicken strips. Why? Why? What does that matter to eternity? What does that matter to the world around me? Well, when I die, will anybody care? Because I'm going to die of chicken strips and bacon. And it's going to happen, right? Will it even matter? Will I have mattered? Will I have made any impact? And the book of Ruth really answers that question in a way that we fail to realize sometimes because we look at big Christians and prominent Christians and Christians who write books and make videos and sing songs and we think, if only I could be a Christian like them, then I could change the world. The book of Ruth tells us you don't need to be a Christian like them. You need to be the best Christian you are and faithful in your everyday life and trust the hand of God for what is to come. Trust the hand of God for the impact that you're going to make. Does it matter if you reach a billion people? No, or just five people or one. Look, you're important, you're critical. But what's critical for you to make the impact you're supposed to make in this world as a believer is that you are faithful in your everyday life to the God who loves you and cares for you and provides for you. That there is never a moment where you think, I don't matter, or God don't, doesn't matter. Because every moment of your life, your faithfulness counts, and your God is ready to use you. Every circumstance is something that He has ordained for you to live through. And He seeks your faithfulness. First Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 10, the second half The Apostle Paul writes to the church there and he says this, but we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more. And before he had been talking about loving one another. So love one another even more. And then he says this, try and start a ministry where your name is on the door, raise millions of dollars, get a satellite, be on the television every night, raising money and telling people something about the gospel kind of remotely Maybe you should start a music career, get on reality TV, and then your life will matter. No. Love one another, seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, (laughs) and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. To be satisfied in the faithful, quiet, peaceful life of a normal, everyday nobody. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not good to achieve things. That doesn't mean that you you shouldn't take advantage of opportunities that God brings down your path. But what it does mean is that the bigger issue is not what's your five year plan but are you going to live like Christ today are you going to be faithful in what he's brought you into in this moment are you going to live out his word the way he's called you to and to do so in a way that no one may notice but it will matter to him and it will matter to you will you be faithful lead a quiet life Mind your own business. (laughs) Work with your own hands that you might glorify God. In 2 Thessalonians, they didn't hear it the first time when he wrote a letter to them. The second letter he writes to them, he has to say it this way. For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They are not busy, but busy bodies. Too often Christianity, living it out, is just defined by being a busy body, but not being productive. Getting All the information and telling everybody about it, but being nothing of real meaning in your own soul. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. Peter says it this way. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good, your good works, and will glorify God on the day he visits. To just... Be willing to live quiet, faithful, everyday lives. You see, Ruth had no design to leave Moab to go and be the, the great-grandmother, yeah, of a king. In fact, she probably never even saw the king. She probably died before David was in the picture of, in any real way. She had no design for, I'm going to do great things for God. Instead, it was, I'm going to be faithful to my mother-in-law. I'm going to work hard with my hands according to what God has given me. I'm going to be faithful to my husband. Boaz was not, I'm going to be the great-grandpa of the king. It is instead, I'm going to redeem my family. I'm going to be faithful to this woman. I'm going to serve her and we're going to raise up our child in faithfulness. We're going to keep growing grain and we're going to keep harvesting it and we're going to keep glorifying God. Living a normal, everyday, insignificant life all to the glory of God. I want you to hear those words. Normal, everyday, insignificant. Not as value judgments, but just simple descriptors of what many of us will do any given day. Because... We know that all things work together for the good good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You see, God's plan for each and every one of us is for us to live quiet, faithful, simple lives that honor Him and grow us up to be brothers and sisters looking more like Jesus. And Paul was so confident in this plan that he said this to the church in Philippi, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So brothers and sisters, as we wrap up our time today, as we get ready to close together with our last song of the morning, I want to encourage you. From the book of Ruth, we learn the simple truth that God has a plan. God is in control. God has this perfect providence. But you know what? We might not ever see what that plan will be. Instead, He calls us to simply live quiet and meaningful lives of faithfulness in everything we are and do. And that everything He sets in front of us and gives us the path for continue to be faithful. And sometimes we'll get to see big results. And sometimes we will go to our grave not knowing what He's going to do with it. And in just two or three generations, the world will be changed by our quiet, everyday faithfulness. And so this morning, as we wrap up our time, I just want to encourage you, if you're struggling with where you're at, you're feeling like, I'm not enough, it's okay. It's okay for you to simply stand back, Give up the rat race. Give up the trying to get your name on a ministry or a website or a dealership or a whatever. And instead to just be a faithful believer where you're at. Now, don't hear me wrong. If you're a driven person, drive hard. Pursue. Be passionate. We need a few driven people in the world, right? (laughs) But not all of us have to be like that. In fact, many of us, most of us, the thing we're going to do in this Christian life is to quietly live faithfully every day doing what God has put before us and doing it in a way where we trust that He has the good outcome in hand already. And so this morning, would you trust Him quietly? Would you live faithfully in what He's given to you? Would you seek to give up the longing to be like everyone else and simply be the best you in Christ Jesus you can be? Would that be so for you today? Let's spend a moment in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the history of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. This true history tells us that you don't need big people or flashy people you don't need prophets and priests and kings for every circumstance but sometimes your great plans are achieved by the quiet faithful life of believers who are seeking to do the right thing in every circumstance and who have no grand designs for accomplishments Or being like everybody else, but instead simply want to be the best that you've made them to be. May that be so of us this morning. May we abandon the things the world is telling us we have to be and achieve. And instead, may we take up all of the things that you tell us we get to be. And all of the things we have achieved in our Savior all. Help us to rejoice in the fact that those of us who have believed on Your Son, Jesus, as our Savior, we are brothers and sisters, we are sons and daughters of You, the Most High God. And that Your plans for us will not fail. Even as we prayed earlier, how our big brother taught us, we trust that Your your will will be done. Your kingdom will come that you'll provide for us daily, that you'll protect us from evil, and that you'll forgive us as we are faithful to forgive. Help us to be overjoyed in the fact that we get to live simple, quiet, everyday lives as Christians. And for the few of us who are driven in different ways, who may be the big achievers. Help those of us who are quiet and maybe not so outlandishly bravado-filled. Help us to not be jealous, but instead to pray for them, to undergird them, and to trust in what you're going to do. through them. God, you're so good to us. You've made us all different, and yet you've called us all to the same thing, faithfulness. May it be so in your son, Jesus. In his name we pray this morning. Amen. Let's sing together.
1: Tremble, Jesus. Jesus. Shadows can't deny
0: a good week to start being satisfied, to live quiet, faithful lives in whatever steps God has ordained for you this week, to just seek to glorify Him. May God bless you as you do that this week and and every week. And I encourage you to, if you're struggling with that, you're struggling with knowing what steps to take, engage with other brothers and sisters. Uh, This faith was not meant to be walked alone. So if you are trying to lone ranger your Christianity, you will struggle. It'll be difficult at times. So seek others to help you talk through what your next walk step might be. God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. And then, of course, at our small group stuff throughout the week. And uh, guys, we'll have more information for the men's retreat coming up in the next couple of weeks, including sign-up sheets. So God bless you guys.